Open your Bibles with me this morning, if you would. Exodus chapter 20, in your Old Testament, as you can see. Today we're starting a new series, Truth or Not, What You Believe Makes a Difference. You know, we believe a lot of things. You watch the news, like I do, and every day we're confronted with what is now fake news, whatever that is. Fake news is sometimes whatever you don't like to hear. Sometimes fake news is just that. It's fake. It's not real. It's made up and that kind of thing. Misinformation and whatever. And uh, sometimes what you believe really does make a difference. So for the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about those sometimes considered very basics of the faith that you might not normally consider. Some would call, you, call it a worldview. Some would call it a value system. So it's not just what you believe about God and Jesus, but how you think it affects us and how we are to live and how those things affect our life. So we're going to talk about those things for the next several weeks. We'll begin in Exodus chapter 20 in just a moment. As always, we pray. You've heard a couple of ministries in our church that are beginning today. So I encourage you to pray for those and, and give generously and get as involved as you can. But pray also for those in our community. For our country as we go into an election season. Always an agonizing time. Lots of bad commercials. Some of whom which can believe and some you can't. And uh, those kinds of things. Pray for Ukraine. For those in Russia now that are going through a tough time. Pray that God can use this unrest as a way to stir people from their slumber and wake them up to faith. I'll give you a few moments of silent prayer. I'll close and then we'll look at this passage together. Would you bow with me please? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your presence, for life itself. You have blessed us. We are rich, wealthy, healthy. We live in the greatest land on earth. We are free and safe and secure here, Father. Thank you. We thank you for this faith that we have that guides and directs us, that saves us, that helps us to be our best selves that enables us to live a life that can please you and that you can bless and use. Thank you, Father, for providing for our needs. Father, we ask this morning for mercy. Even though we follow you in faith, at times our faithlessness takes over. Forgive us for our sin, for our apathy, sometimes for our refusal to follow you. We ask for mercy, Father. We pray this morning for those who struggle. For those in Ukraine, we pray that as they fight for their freedom and for their lives, that you would protect them. We know they're not perfect, but in this instance, they are victims. Help them. Keep them from being discouraged and crushed. We pray for those in Russia. They too begin to go through difficult times because of the actions of one. 
We pray, Father, for peace. We pray that the one who is making those decisions would have a change of heart. Work that out, Father. Only you can do that. We pray for our, our soldiers, their families, for our first responders and their families. Keep them safe. We pray that they could save lives and make a difference wherever they are and comfort their families as they are separated from their loved ones. And for those who lose their loved ones, gives them a special sense of your presence. As always, we pray that you'd be with those that have power over us, some elected, some appointed. We pray that you would give them wisdom and discernment. We pray that they could make good decisions that would honor you and serve the good. And Lord, help us. We struggle each day in our daily lives. We pray for faith. We pray for hope and encouragement and strength. And we pray for peace. Thank you, Father, again for all that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So who's in charge? Wherever you go, somebody's in charge. You ever notice that? Sometimes it's you. Sometimes you think it's you, but it's not. Sometimes it's obvious that somebody else is in charge. That is the way of the world. What I'm talking about is a sense of accountability. To whom are you accountable? Which is really who's in charge. It's kind of a big deal anymore, isn't it? You hear about that word accountability almost every day on the news. If a policeman does something and he breaks the law, a distraught parent will always say, we need to hold this man accountable. When a politician does something that is against the law or unethical or something like that, his opponents will say, we need to hold him accountable. Accountability means you've got to own up for who you are and what you've done. It means somebody is in charge over you. When we say somebody ought to do something, what that means is somebody in charge needs to do something. And we hope that that person who is in charge asserts their authority. Well, today we're going to talk about accountability. Who's in charge? Who says they're in charge and things like that? We have a need for people to be in charge. Think about this. If no one is in charge, who sets the rules? If no one's in charge, who will enforce the rules? If no one's in charge, there are no rules. You've been in those situations. If no one's in charge, anything can happen. I was watching our, my grandkids yesterday. My grandkids are five, and then uh, there's five of them, and then there are a couple of other uh, nieces and nephews. There are seven little kids, little squirts. And my oldest, Tessa, is 12. And she's trying to corral these seven kids. Now, there are adults around, but you know adults, we get tired, and we're eating, and we're talking about important things, and the kids go off and do their thing, and we were watching them, and the oldest one, Tessa, tries to assert herself. She's pretty good, actually. She's kind of scary for a 12-year-old. And she asserts herself, and she's in charge. And a lot of times, her mama will say, Tessa, you take care of them, and she does that. And then the kids all know that if Tessa's around, things are going to be okay. But if Tessa's not there, there's a little bit of hesitancy because they don't know who's in charge. And they know that if no one's in charge, they're probably going to end up in trouble. 
It's the way it is, isn't it? It's the way we are. If we know that no one's in charge, if we know that there's no one to enforce the rules, well, there are no rules if there's no one to enforce the rules. Leads to a scary situation. Well, today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where God is addressing that very issue. Follow along with me if you would. Exodus chapter 20, the first three verses. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before you. This is a really nice way of saying, I'm in charge, isn't it? We are accountable to God. On screen, you can go to that next screen, and we can see that phrase, I am the Lord your God. This is God saying, listen, I'm in charge. Now, he was talking to a new group of people. They were the Hebrew slaves. They were this newfound people. They had only been together as a people for a short time. Just months before, they were slaves all in Egypt. Mixed breeds, a lot of Hebrew types, a lot of other types that got thrown into the mix. Crossed the river, crossed the sea. A people for the first time. And God comes and the first thing he says to them, listen, I'm in charge. Now, why would he do that? Number one, because he's in charge. Those that are in charge needs to be in charge, don't they? You know that. We all, you, all of us have been in situations where no one would take charge and we know it's hard for a group to function if no one's in charge. The Hebrew people, this new nation, needed to know who's in charge. So God was doing it for their benefit in some sense. In another sense, God was saying, listen, I'm in charge. I'm the Lord your God because they needed to know who's in charge. And as in the best of all instances, the one in charge really does know what needs to be done. So what we have here is really a power play by God. God asserting himself in the very best of situations where God says, listen, I'm in charge. Politicians do this all the time. We're going to see this happen in just a few weeks. We're going to have all kinds of political ads, all of them bad. Some of them can be trusted, some of them cannot. And then we're going to vote, and people are going to win, and people are going to lose, right? And the loser, we don't call them losers. We call them the combatants or whatever, and they lose, and they give a concession speech. In the concession speech, they say in a very nice way, I lost, you're in charge. The victor does the acceptance speech, the victory speech. And he says, in a very nice way, I won. I'm in charge. This is what they do. And so you can watch those. They're usually pretty nice about it. Sometimes they're kind of rude. But, but most politicians kind of smooth it over and say, I won. The people have spoken. And now I call everybody to work together. But nevertheless, the thrust of that victory speech is, I'm in charge. And... We need that. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. God asserts, I'm in charge. We need to take that in a little bit. God says, he's in charge. I brought you out of Egypt. I did this. He's reminding him, listen, you live, you function, you are a new people. Because I, I have done this. He's asserting his authority over them. He's asserting his power over them. He's saying to them, and by extension to us, you need to listen to what I have to say. 
So what we want to do is take just a little bit to talk about what this idea of one true God means on this next screen. Just some things that are in the Bible. We're going to just talk about these things quickly. The one thing that we have to understand that there is one and only one God. We do not believe, I'm going to say this just the way, the way preachers talk. We do not believe in a lot of gods in one big God. We don't believe that there's lots of little gods under the one God. That is not the Christian biblical position. What we believe is there's only one. So by default, of course, he is the greatest and the one God. We are monotheist, one God. So when we talk to other people who may have other gods, and as we make connections with people from India and from other parts of the Asian world, they have many gods, and you know that. Multiple gods, sometimes hundreds if not thousands of gods. And we have to be understanding, even though we don't agree. And what we need to be willing to do is say, we don't believe in those gods. We don't think they exist. And you can be gracious about it. At the same time, you need to be willing to say, I believe that there is only one God. That is the Christian and the Jewish perspective. He's a creator and giver of life, which means he put it all together. Now, I used to be threatened by science and all those kinds of things, and I, this is a long time ago, but I thought that science was going to be able to prove that God wasn't God and God hadn't created and all those kinds of things. And I realize now how silly and childish that was because science can't prove that God exists or that he doesn't exist. You know what science proves? Science proves processes. They might be able to prove that something that we used to believe was incorrect but they're never going to disprove God. God is creator and giver of life. Scientists will show us processes. This is how God did it. They won't say that, but we'll know. Because our God is a creator and giver of life. We are created by God. What human life is created by God? Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Yeah, those people. Every, all people. They're all created by God. We had this thing at my house yesterday. It was a hay ride with all kinds of grandkids and all that business. And in the middle of this, we had kind of a family crisis. There was a, I have goats, I've talked to bows, and they're all female. And that's the way I want to stay, and I don't want any men around them and all that business, you know. Because that just caused problems. Well, anyway, yesterday, the house reeked of kerosene. And that's the smell of a male goat ready to find females. And he, he had broken out of his barn two miles away and found my females and he was down there running circles around my barn and all day we had to put up with this nonsense so finally Tammy was able to get a hold of this family that lived two miles from us and they had lost their goats and this is through Facebook and some of you know how that works and so we were there and she got a hold talking on the phone they were going to come up and come and get their goat and this big male goat was a big stinking thing and he was a constant source of irritation to us and so these two people came in and the, the two people had skipped finishing school if you use the word redneck images come to mind I will always think of the two people that showed up in my driveway yesterday when I see the word redneck now they were nice people there was no handshaking, though. I never did get his name. He didn't care. He got out of his truck, started griping about his goat, and they went to business. And they called in family members. And we had a commotion, and they caught it, and we wrestled that big old goat to the ground. I say we, they did, and I laid on top and tied him up. And then they took him, and they threw, up on, 
threw him up on top of the flatbed truck, and there were several trucks there because of this. And then he climbed up, and he laid on top of this goat. And that's how he left. He laid on top of this goat, on top of the flatbed, so the goat didn't get up and run away. And his wife, who didn't know how to drive a stick shift very well, was jerking all the way down the highway. And I was thinking, now that's a redneck family. And you know what I thought? They're created, just like us. Doesn't mean I like their smell or their manners or anything, but they are creations of God, just like us. It's good to remember that. It's, it's good that you have this value system that says that all people were created by God, because if you have that understanding that everybody is created by God, even if you don't like the way they look, smell, taste, or drink, they're still good people, folks. They're still people that God loves. They're still people for whom Jesus died. They're still people that have potential within them. And we need to be reminded of that because it is so easy to fall into the trap of dividing people by group. See, one of the value systems that Christians have that comes from biblical teachings is that everybody you meet is created in the image of God. We all feel the same way. One of the other things that comes out of this idea of God being God is that he has plans. I've talked a lot about God's plans for your life and how you find that and all those kinds of things. That's one of those ideas that when God is God, he has plans. Now the reason we know he has plans is, number one, he tells us. Number two, when we talk about the processes of science and life and all those things, you don't have someone who just throws stuff together. You have one who plans. It's pretty amazing, actually. God plans. And then he works out plans. He even says things like that. I have plans for you. Plans to gift you, to prosper you, and those kinds of things. He uses the word plan for the way he works with us. He plans for us. He's in charge. He has authority and power. And he plans to work for our good, to bless us. See, that's part of our value system as Christians. That God plans to work in our behalf. Doesn't mean you deserve it. Doesn't mean you're perfect or anything like that. Just means that's who God is. So when God says, I am in charge. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. He's telling them, listen, I'm the whole deal. And this is one of those foundational truths of Christianity. And Judaism, by the way. That God is God. That he's absolutely in control. And that he is working towards an end that is in his heart and mind. You don't have to know it. You don't have to understand it. God is going to work. Now, he asks you to join him in this plan. He asks you, he gives you opportunities to join and serve him. But he's going to do it anyway. He's not going to be stopped by us. On screen, there's another thing. Read this with me. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights from our own Declaration of Independence. What this means is that the Founding Fathers understood some things. Now, listen close. Some of our Founding Fathers were not Christians. They were what we call deists. They believed in God. They knew Scripture. But they didn't follow Jesus as Savior. And if you read their writings, you'll find that out. But they were good guys. And good guys put these things together. And, now listen, they did not form a Christian nation. This nation was not intended to be Christian. This was intended to be a free nation where Christians and Muslims 
and Hindus and atheists could get together and work together and serve together. There were some Christian leaders who were in the form of founding fathers, yes. And, you know, some people have tried to make this a Christian nation and they have failed. We're not a Christian nation, obviously, for all sorts of reasons. But you need to understand that whenever someone says we need to make this a Christian nation, what they're doing is going against some of the founding fathers because the documents that we live by as Americans understood that this isn't a Christian nation. It's a good nation. It's a, hopefully a godly nation, but it isn't necessarily Christian. Islam is welcome. Hindu is welcome. I don't understand it. I'm going to have a supper tonight with a family from Afghanistan. Muslim. Not interested in Jesus at all. But you know what? They're created in the image of God. They're not interested in Jesus. But they love and they love this nation. So the Bible challenges us. Our forefathers challenge us. But they all assert this idea that there is a God who is in charge. Our founding fathers assert that we are free people because that's the way God has made us. And this brings us to this idea that we are all accountable to the one true God. Look at verse 12 in Romans. Read this with me. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Yeah. Judgment seat is just what it sounds like. For you stand before the judge and you answer. You are held accountable. Remember where God says, I am the one God, that means he's in charge. He will hold you accountable. This isn't one of those sermons where I'm going to try to scare you, even though it's a little bit intimidating, isn't it, to know that at one time, at some time in your life, in your future, somewhere along the way, you will sit or stand before God himself and you will answer for your life. Details. It's terrifying to me. One of the things that God wants us to understand is, if you live with a healthy fear of him, that will help you in life. This is how it helps me, by way of analogy. I have a lead foot. You know what that means, right? It doesn't mean I walk bad. It means I drive fast. My wife will tell you, I don't drive fast. I just don't slow down for curves. You know, I don't particularly go fast down the straight, but, but I just don't slow down. If I set the cruise control at 65 or 70 or whatever, I just hang on around the corners because that's the way it's made to go. And I've been that way forever. I'm better than I used to be. Tammy doesn't grip the side of the door like she used to. I don't know if I'm getting slower or she's just getting faster. I don't know that. But, uh, but I have learned that there is one thing for sure that will slow me down. And that is the, si the side of one of those cruisers parked in the weeds as I drive by. I am terrified of the ticket that that young man can give me. And I don't want the lecture that he will give me. And I don't want to be pulled over. And I don't want to lose the money and have to go to court and all those kinds of things. I've been that route. Don't ever want to do it again. Now, I'm not necessarily afraid trembling. But I am afraid enough to slow down. It affects my behavior. You see, fear is a good thing. If it affects your behavior and causes you to do good things and avoid bad things, fear is good. So, when we look at this, where we see that God is in charge. And we are going to be held accountable before God. That's a good thing. It helps us. You may be able to get away with some things because of people, but you will stand before God. God teaches us. He nurtures us. He loves us. 
And he warns us, listen, there is a way to live. And if you live across this way, by the narrow way, you will have a good life and God will bless you. And when you stand before God, he will say, well done, that good and faithful servant. If you choose to live out in the other path, though, you reject God's ways and you ignore him, when you stand before him, you will be afraid. There is a sense of terror here. You don't have to spend too much time thinking about it. But there is this sense that we will stand before God. Regardless of what you think or how you believe, you will stand before God. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Mentioned many times in Scripture. Interestingly enough, you've heard the phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Eight times in the Bible. The fear of the Lord. I used to scrub that away and say, well, what that really means is the respect of the Lord. Because that doesn't sound as bad as fear. But you know, pesky language, it is exactly the word fear. It doesn't say the respect of the Lord, the awe of the Lord. That is not what the text says. The biblical author said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When you realize that you are not in charge, when you realize that you will answer to God, you are accountable to him, and what he says means something. When you do that, that's the beginning of wisdom, where you begin to make choices that are better, where you begin to submit to God because he's in charge. God doesn't really want us to be afraid of him in a terrific sense, but he wants us to understand he's in charge. My dad was like that with me. My dad's been dead 11 years. I think about him early this morning. I got up early and was thinking about this. And I joke about being afraid of my dad now. And you'll hear me say things like this. You know, my dad's going to roll over in a grave if I do this. I'm not really afraid of him anymore. He's not alive to hit me. But there are times in my life when I am tempted to act in a certain way or not. And I think of my dad. And out of reverence and respect, I let him affect me. Maybe that's what God means. Still a little bit of fear there. I want to honor Father God out of respect, out of fear. You are accountable for your actions. God will hold you accountable. You may resist all authority on this earth. People do that. But ultimately you will stand before God. On screen is the one answer to this fear. Read this with me. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Propitiation is a fancy word for covering. Advocate is the big word there. Advocate is just an old word for lawyer. When you stand before a judge here, you are sure to get you a lawyer. You don't understand the process. That judge can be terrifying. He can control everything. He can hurt you. When you stand before God, he is judge and jury. But you are not alone because your advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, is there with you. He stands by your side. He puts his hand on your shoulder as God speaks. You can use this image. And when God is ready to pronounce judgment, your lawyer will say, 
Father, he's with me. That's what that whole salvation thing is, is about. Jesus saving you from righteous judge. Jesus cleansing you. Jesus protecting you. Jesus guiding you. You want this lawyer at your side. That's what salvation is. Don't ever be afraid of saying and admitting that you're just a little bit afraid of God. That's all right. Don't ever be embarrassed about that. You know, some Christians are afraid to say, they will say things like this. Well, I don't think we should be afraid of God. The Bible says we should. You don't have to go to seed on it. You don't have to go crazy with it. But understand, you are dealing with the one who is in charge. Follow Jesus. Find your place. And let Jesus be with you as you face the one who is God. Nate's going to come and lead us in a closing hymn of invitation. Why don't you stand with me? As always, a hymn of invitation is a chance for you to respond to the God who is God. Follow him in faith. If there are decisions you need to make, you can make those and come forward. Nate? Judy, before you pray, remind them about the details about the Bible study Wednesday night, okay? Why don't you come on over and do that? Wednesday night at our Bible study, we serve dinner at 6 o'clock. This week it's going to be pizza, so bring a side, a salad, or a dessert. Come and join us. Even if you're not signed up, we'll make do with what we have. We have a good idea of how many we'll have there, but please come if you can. We eat at 6, and we have our Bible study up in the fellowship hall at 7. So if you can't make dinner, try to make the study. It's a really good one this year on the Old uh, Testament. Pray with me now. Father, thank you for the wisdom of your word that is shared with us in this church. We ask you to walk with us through this week, Lord. Guard everything we say, everything we think, and everything we do. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.